The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. So last week, last weekend was Valentine's uh, weekend, and for Valentine's weekend, my wife and I decided to take an overnight date out of town. Uh, But because of the winter weather that was expected, um, we didn't know for sure when we were going to make it to our destination. And so I wasn't able to make advanced reservations for a restaurant. So when we arrived, I called one of the local restaurants, asked them if they had any availability, and they said, we're booked solid for the next several hours. Uh, Bummer. I got out my phone, was scrolling through my phone to find another restaurant, and the name of one particular restaurant uh, caught my eye. And so I called them. Uh, The woman who answered me told me that, um, that they had some availability at the time, but their evening rush was going to start within 30 minutes, so we were only five minutes away. We made it, made our way over there right away, and as promised, we were shown straight away to our table. And then, but before before the food even arrived, before the appetizer even arrived, there was 15 to 20 people waiting for a table. I mean, so just as she had said, uh, we'd we'd gotten there just in time. The food was delicious. The service was outstanding. Uh, the restaurant looked rather new, and so as I was preparing to pay, I asked. Um, you know, how long they had been there. And she told me, uh, we just opened in October. Um, so October of 2020. Um, well, we enjoyed our experience so much um, that Friday evening, we decided we're going to go back there for Saturday for breakfast. Um, uh, this time we weren't uh, as fortunate. We didn't beat the rush. We get there and uh, they, she says, it's going to be about an hour wait before you can get a table. Um, and since the winter weather was moving in town, we weren't able to, to have breakfast there. Um, and we had to go elsewhere. But it got me to thinking, you know, what made this restaurant that opened just in October in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, what made that restaurant so popular? You know, waiting line on Friday night, uh, even an even longer waiting line on Saturday morning. You know, what gives? Why, why is a restaurant so popular so quickly? I mean, there were, there were other restaurants nearby, um, good restaurants. We've been to this town before. We've eaten at some of those restaurants. And so... Um, but as I thought about it, I thought, you know, maybe there's something in the name of this restaurant. I'd mentioned before, it, it was the name that caught my eye. The name of the restaurant was Agape Restaurant. Uh, many of you will recognize Agape as one of the Greek words for love. The Greeks have a number of different words for love, but Agape is generally represented the highest form of love. And their slogan at the restaurant was, Love is an action. Love is an action. And I'm going to tell you, from my initial phone call to being seated by the hostess to the service we received from our server to the food, everything, everything about our experience on that Friday night showed me that it was more than just a slogan at this restaurant. The people who worked there actually believed it. They believed that love is indeed in action. And so here's a question for us as we uh, prepare to dive into the text this morning. Do we believe that love is an action? Do we believe that Christian love 
is in action. And so without any further ado, let's look at the text. We'll be in Romans 13, verses 8 and following. Follow along with me, please, if you will. Paul writes, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. And the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know that the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for our time together. And we pray, Lord, that during this time that you would be honored as we sit under the teaching of your word. I pray, Father, that uh, the words that you've given me to say would be an accurate re- reflection of the text and that you would use this time now, use your word through your spirit to mold us and shape each one of us more and more to the image of Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here today, even one soul here today, who's never trusted in Jesus, Father, I pray that through the power of your spirit and your word, Lord, that you would uh, cause that individual to trust in faith and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're a note taker, a very central, very simple idea today is that love is the defining Christian characteristic. Love is the, if you want to, is the defining Christian characteristic. And I want to make just two points. A couple of weeks ago we had, what, 20-something points, right? Today is just two points. Uh, two points, naturally they'll be a little bit longer than the 20 points were individually. Um, first, first point is love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. Early in the service, Morgan read beautifully from the book of Exodus. She, she was reading for us the Ten Commandments. But what are we to make of those Ten Commandments? After all, one might argue that we're New Covenant Christians. We live in the New Covenant. We're not part of the Old Covenant any longer. And so what are we to make of them? What are we to make of these dusty, old commandments that were given some 3,500 years ago? Well, Paul addresses that question head on in our text today. He opens up verse 8 with these words. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. If you heard last week's sermon, you know that You'll recall that verse 7, so the end of last week's sermon, uh, Paul commands us to pay to all what is owed them. We were, we were told to pay taxes, we're to pay, pay revenue, we're to pay honor, we're to pay um, respect to all whom it is owed. And so we are in short to keep our debts current. If we owe somebody money, we pay it, period, end of discussion. We settle our accounts. But there's one account for the Christian that can never be settled. There's one account where we can never say, you know, I'm paid up. 
I don't, I don't have to do anything more on this account. I'm, I'm fully paid on this account. And that account is the account of love. And this is an agape type of love that Paul's talking about here. That's the Greek word that he's using here. An agape love is a, it's a non-sexual affection. In other, so in other words, it's not a romantic type of love. Agape love, rather, is a love for a person as we seek their highest good, as God would define their highest good. So not, not as we would define what their highest good is, and not even as they themselves would say, well, this, I think this is what's best for me. No, as God would define their highest good. And so agape love, it's characterized by a willingness to forfeit one's own rights so that the other person can be served. And so Paul tells us again in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Do you see how he ends that verse? He ends that verse by grounding love, agape love. He ends the verse by grounding it in the law. And not just in the law, in the fulfilling of the law. And so when, when Christians love one another with this type of love, we're actually fulfilling the law. Jesus Himself told us that this is the type of love that when we love one another with this type of love, that the world is going to be able to tell that we're genuinely His disciples. Jesus says these words in, in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the love that Jesus is talking about here, is, it's of course, it's that agape type of love. So we might read those verses this way. A new commandment I give you, that you agape one another. Just as I have agaped you, you also are to agape one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have agape for one another. And so let me ask this question. How are we doing there? How are we collectively as a church, as a church body, how are we doing with that? How are we doing at fulfilling the law as we demonstrate our love to one another? And so it's not to let you off the hook individually. How are you doing there? How are you, individually you, how are you doing there? Are you fulfilling the law in how you love one another? Remember, agape love is an action. It starts with an attitude of the heart, but it doesn't stay in the heart. Because it's in our heart, then we automatically do it. It's because out of the heart become our actions. And so are we fulfilling the law by how we love one another? And for the record, I'm not just talking about how we love those people who are easy to love. I'm talking about demonstrating love to those people who aren't easy to love. Are we fulfilling the law in love? Next, in verse 9, Paul makes an even more tangible connection to the law. He doesn't just refer to the law in general. Rather, he gets very specific now. And he actually quotes from the law. And he begins quoting from the passage that Morgan read earlier. He says, For the commandments, you shall not, uh, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. 
And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in the first half of that verse, he quotes the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, and the tenth commandments. Now, we're not to make a big deal about why, why is he quoting them out of order? Is there, is there something significant about the order that he's quoting? That, that, that's, there's, nothing, there's not a big deal there. But we are to make a big deal about which tablet he's quoting from. And let me explain what I mean that by which tablet he's quoting from. You see, it's widely understood that the Ten Commandments can be broken up into two tablets. We have the, there are the vertical commands, and then there are the horizontal commands. The vertical commands are commands that govern our relationship with God. Those would be the first four commandments. And then there are the horizontal commands, which govern our relationships with one another. Those would be commands 6 through 10, so the last six commandments. And so Paul here, he's quoting exclusively from the horizontal commandments. We only have four of them here. And so he's excluding two of the horizontal commandments. Namely, he's excluding the fifth commandment about honoring your mother and father. And he's excluding the ninth commandment about not stealing. Um, Now, Paul's not saying, well, okay, then go ahead and steal all you want or you don't have to honor your mother and father. That's not his point. He's simply making a representative sample of these horizontal commandments. And he tells us then in verse 9 that these horizontal commandments, they can be summed up in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so how do we love our neighbor? How do we do that? Well, to start off, Paul says, well, you know, try this. Don't sleep with his wife, right? I mean, that's what he's saying. Don't commit adultery. And, and for that matter, Jesus would add to that. Don't, don't just not sleep with her. Don't even have lustful thoughts about her. And we love our neighbor by not killing her. I mean, we, we might think, well, of course. That's a, but that, that's, that's the point that Paul's making. And, and again, according to Jesus, by not even having evil thoughts about her. And we might continue this idea of how do we love one another. We love our neighbor when we refuse to slander her. But rather we say encouraging things that might build her up. And we love our neighbor when we let him know that we're praying for him that we're praying for a particular reason or for no particular reason at all. We're just praying for that individual. And we love our neighbor when we do something kind for her. Maybe something as simple, you know, given all the winter weather we've had, something as simple as shoveling snow or ice from a sidewalk. And we love our neighbor when there's there's only one piece of pie left in the fridge. And instead of selfishly devouring that piece of pie, we say, "Would, would you like to have this? first you see love doesn't always demand grand actions but it does always demand action love is an action so let me ask these three questions briefly here are the first two why i want why are we called to love and why is love an action why are we called to love and why is love an action well we're called to love because God loved us first. And we're called to love as an action because God demonstrated His love to us in an action. Perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, for, and it, for God so agape the world, that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do, do you see the action in that type of love? 
He loves us so much. They didn't just say, hey, I'm sending sweet nothings your way. He loved us so much that He gave. He gave His Son, His only Son, for us. We, because of our sin, we've been separated from God. We were enemies of God. But God loved us and sent His Son for us. Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world, lived a perfect life, never sinned, never did anything to deserve God's judgment. But at the end of His earthly life, He took God's perfect judgment on Himself. He took the judgment of God that was intended for our sin. Jesus took that judgment. He paid our debt so that we don't have to pay it. So that if we turn from our sin and we turn to trust in Jesus, we can have eternal life. So why do we love? And why is love in action? Well, we love through our action because Jesus loved us through His action. Here's the third question. Who's our neighbor? Jesus was asked that question, by the way. Who's, who's our neighbor? You know, if we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, then it sure would be helpful to know who our neighbor is, right? So, who's our neighbor? Well, let's, let's start with this. Look around the room. Go ahead, you can do it. Look around the room right now. See, see who's here. Look around. These are your neighbors. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. For those of us who are members here at this church, these other members are part of your family. You are in a covenant relationship with them. Now for those of you who aren't members here or anywhere else for that, maybe you're just visiting, let me just ask you this question, why not? Why aren't you a member in a church? If you're a Christian... If you've turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, then then you've been commanded to be a part of a church family where you can love one another through church membership. So we, we start by loving our neighbors who are in this room. Now, look around the room again. Go ahead, do it. It's all right. This is participation time. This time, instead of instead of noticing who's here, I want you to notice who's not here. I want you to think about who's not here. You know, we are in the midst of a pandemic right now, and we have church members who haven't been inside this church building in over a year because of the pandemic. They're our neighbors as well. Maybe loving well would look like a phone call to one of those neighbors who aren't here. Just to say, hey, I love you. Sure, I sure do miss seeing you. And I hope you'll feel comfortable soon coming back and joining us in worship but in the meantime i want you to know that i love you and i hope to see you again soon here's my point we have neighbors all of around all around us we have neighbors here in this room we have neighbors we haven't seen in a while and we're called to love each of them as we'd love ourselves paul closes this paragraph by reemphasizing something he's he did at the beginning of this paragraph. He, look with me there at verse 10. Um, it's always a good form of writing, by the way. Um, I tell students, the students I teach um, online, I tell them, you know, when, you, when you're writing a paper, you, you, you introduce an idea, and then when you conclude your paper, you're, you're, you're re-emphasizing that same idea to bring some cohesiveness to it. And that's what Paul's doing right here in this paragraph. 
He says in verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now, that, that doesn't mean, by the way, that we're perfect. You know, there will be times when we mess up. I'll mess up. You'll mess up. We, we all do that. We'll, we'll say something that wasn't Christ-like or we'll do something that will bring dishonor to Christ. These things happen. But as Christians, what do we do? We, we repent. And then in as much as it's up to us, we live at peace with all people. And so we, we seek reconciliation. But all we owe to others, and we always owe this debt, is to love them. It's a debt that will never be paid in full. We're called to love others all the time. And as we love others, we fulfill the law. That's point number one. Point number two. Love allows us to walk as Jesus walked. This would be in verses 11 through 14. So the second paragraph there. Paul warns us there in verse 11. He says, besides this, so besides this, this conversation of love and how love fulfills law, besides this, he says that we know the time. He tells us there in verse 11 that the hour has come and he tells us to, to wake up from our sleep. Have you ever, have you ever wondered what, what time is he talking about? What, what hour has come? Well, the, the rest of verse 11 actually sheds some light on that. He says in the latter half of verse 11, he says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And so for Paul, he has some fixed point in his future that he's thinking about here. It's just a matter of sheer logic. He's saying that his readers now are closer to that day than when they first believed in Jesus. And to this point, I would argue that we're closer to that day today than they were. In fact, we're about 2,000 years closer to that day than they were. And tomorrow this time will be 24 hours closer. And next week of this time, if, if the Lord should tarry, we'll be seven days closer than we are right now. Because the point to which Paul is referring, the, this future time, the, this time that is near, it's the consummation of the age. He's talking about the day that Jesus returns again. And the salvation that he's talking about here is our final and ultimate salvation. It's the glorification of our bodies where we become like Jesus. Not that we become God, but that we are resurrected to new life like Jesus. And so he argues there in verse 11 that we need to shake off our slumber. We need to awake from our sleep. Paul certainly anticipated that Jesus might come back again in his lifetime. But we know that the longer a delay happens, the less watchful we become. In his case, in Paul's case, from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection to his writing of this letter to the church in Rome is about 15 years or so. And, and frankly, that's, that's plenty of time to lose focus in 15 years. Now, in our case, it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven. And there are many Christians, maybe even some among us, who live now in a state of stupor, in a state of uh, this idea, well, I've got all the time in the world be before I need to start living a life that honors Christ. Maybe it's how we spend our free time. We, maybe we spend more time on things that have no eternal significance whether they be sports or social media or television. And I'm not saying any of those things are improper. Christian, you, you ought to feel comfortable participating in a sport, 
participating you know, in social media and, or uh, watching television. There's nothing inherently evil about any of those things. But when we make those the major focus of our life and we spend little time in those things that have eternal significance like prayer and the Word of God and other spiritual disciplines, well then we're going to just, by nature, we're going to start to drift. And we're going to start to drift away from those things that are important. And so Paul says he wants, he wants us to snap out of it. He wants us to wake from our sleep. And so, beloved, what, what would it take to wake you from your sleep? If you're in that slumber right now, what would it take to wake you from that sleep? What would it, what would it take to, for you to say, yes, these things, these eternal matters are serious and I need to spend more time focusing on them? In verse 12, we're told that the night is far gone and the day is at hand. We're currently, right now, I know it's daylight outside, but we're, we're living in the night right now. Galatians chapter 1 tells us that we're living in the present evil age. Evil is always, a characteristic of evil is darkness in the Scriptures. But one day, this age, this darkness, this evil age is going to be it's going to come to an end. It's, and it's going to be replaced by daytime, by, by the light. And so this is a warning for us that we need to be ready. It's a warning for us to wake up. You know, we need to stop hitting that spiritual snooze button, if you will. And we need to wake up and be ready. The rest of the paragraph is dominated by our need to be morally ready. Look at me there, please, at the end of verse 12. Those who have been lulled to sleep, Paul says they need to cast off, quote, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. You know, that's part of what it means to be asleep at this time. You know, if we're asleep, we've, we've lost that discerning edge, that discerning mindset where we can properly discern what, is, what righteousness looks like, what godly righteousness, what Christ-like righteousness looks like. And here's how that works. You see, we get lulled into sleep and we start spending more of our time allowing the culture to shape us rather than allowing the Word of God to shape us. We, we watch movies after movie that glamorizes sex outside of marriage. And slowly but surely, our own thoughts on that issue begin to change. And then all of a sudden, we start saying things like, well, you know, he had an affair. Or we say things like, well, you know, they're friends with benefits. We use euphemisms like that instead of calling them what they are. Instead of saying, well, that's adultery. Or that's fornication. Or that's sexual immorality. This spiritual drowsiness that we often live in is the equivalent of a frog in a kettle. You've probably heard this analogy before. Um, I'm told, I've, I've never done this, uh, uh, but I'm told that if you take a frog and you drop that frog into a pot of boiling water, the frog will immediately jump out of the water because the frog recognizes like the extreme temperature difference. Just immediately will jump out and basically be unscathed. But if you take that same frog and you drop that frog into a pot of room temperature water, and put it on the stove to slowly heat it up, the frog will stay in there as the water slowly heats up to boiling and will boil to death. 
Now, don't try that at home, okay? But that's what's happening in our culture. As Christians are sleeping, as we're sleeping, we're slowly boiling to death. Now, most of us in this room don't recognize this. Um, 80 years ago, a movie came out, um, Gone with the Wind. Uh, it's a classic movie. Movie censors at the time nearly cut the final line of the movie. You know, you know the line of the movie. It's one of the most iconic lines of any movie ever. Rhett Butler says to Scarlett O'Hara, Frankly, my dear, I don't give a blank. Now, he uses the D word there. Okay. The, the D word was too much, was, well, was almost too much for Hollywood to handle. I mean, mind you, you're paying money to go see So it's not like this is broadcast over the open air. You had to pay money to go to the theater, and it was like, ooh, that's, you know, that's a little bit too much to handle. That was 80 years ago. So where are we at today? Well, you can turn on Disney Channel and get that word. That, that's not a problem. You see, our morals change slightly, ever so slightly, almost imperceptibly year after year until we arrive at where we're at today. It's almost like when, when, when a person gains weight, you rarely put on 50 pounds in a year. I mean, if you put on 50 pounds a year, your doctor's going to say, okay, something's, something's happening. You need to get some tests done. But you know, when you put on 5 pounds a year, and then at the end of 10 years, you're 50 pounds heavier than you used to be, people go, hmm. It's just ever so slightly things change. And as long as we remain in this slumber, our morals will continue to change ever so slightly. Now, I'm not going to be around in another 80 years. Most of you in this room also won't be around in another 80 years. But I really, I mean, thought about that. I, I just shudder to think about where we'll be as a culture if things continue to progress and Christians remain asleep in our culture. And so we're told to cast off the works of darkness, to put on the armor of light. And then in verse 13, Paul gives us some concrete examples of what, what it means to please the Lord. He says there at the beginning of verse 13, let us walk properly. And by the way, if, if we're told to walk properly, that means there is a way that we can walk improperly. And so enough of this nonsense that we hear in our culture that, well, you know, what's true to you is not true to you, or what's, you know, what's right for you may not be right for you. There is objective right and wrong. There is such a thing. And so if we're told to walk properly, God's Word is telling us that there is an improper way to walk. So Paul gives us six examples of improper walking. And by walking, of course, he's not here referring to the act of putting one foot in front of the other and in front of the other. That's not we, He's talking about how we live in the world. It's a common um, analogy used in Scripture. Now these six Paul groups into three sets of two. First, he says we're to avoid orgies and drunkenness. The idea here is that we're to avoid wild parties full of debauchery and wickedness. When I was in college, and I admit it was a long time ago before some of you in this room were alive when I was in college, but I had friends in college on the dorm hall who would look forward and they would get so excited, man, weekends come up, I'm looking so, man, I'm going to go ahead and get hammered Friday night and Saturday night, I'm going to just get lit up. And I never understood, still to this day, I, don't, I just didn't understand why somebody would look forward to getting so drunk that they wouldn't remember what happened to them. Or getting so drunk that they spent the night puking and then waking up the next morning with this massive hangover. You know, call me naive, but you know, I just 
Really? Maybe one of you says, well, this is why I do it. I mean, I, I, I just don't understand. I don't see the upside of a night like that. Nevertheless, for the Christian, it's something we need to avoid. Just as a, as a, we need to avoid that. Avoid these wild parties and drunkenness. The next pair, sexual immorality and sensuality. As you might suspect, this pair is involving sexual sins. And again, Christians should avoid sexual sins. But what does that mean? What is sexual sins? What, well, what's a sexual sin? What, what does the Bible have to say about sex? Well, as it turns out, quite a bit. The Bible has a lot to say about sex. In fact, the Bible tells us that sex was invented by God. And it's meant to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman, period. And so, any, any sexual activity that occurs outside of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman, biblically speaking, is sexual sin. Now, I could spell out examples, but I'm, I'm, I think we get the point, right? So these are the things that the Christians must avoid. The final pair of sins Paul shares with us are quarreling and jealousy. These are sins that tear apart community. And again, You've heard me say this time and time again that we are created to live in community. And so we need to avoid sins that tear apart the very community that we're intended to live in. Now, now I hope nobody here thinks, okay, well, those are all the works, those six, that, that, that's, that's an exhaustive list of all of the works of darkness. It's, it's not an exhaustive list. Again, he's, he's simply trying to typify, to, to show us by example. These are some examples of what these works of darkness would look like. And then Paul closes this paragraph in verse 14 by commanding us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul gives us two commands in this final verse. First, we're to, we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, we're to make no provision for the flesh. Now those two commands work together, but let's look at them in turn. First, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice here that Paul doesn't tell us that we're just to put on Jesus. He doesn't tell us here that we're just to put on the Christ or the Messiah. But he tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's critical that we understand who Jesus is. Because if we intend to be a Christian, then He is our Lord Jesus Christ with the emphasis on Lord. And if He is our Lord, that means that we are called then to obey Him. He is in charge, not us. What He says goes, not, not what we say. And so, if you, have, if you have no desire for Jesus to be your Lord, well, I, I hate to be the one to break this to you, but I'm going to break it to you. If you have no desire for Jesus to be your Lord, then you're simply not a Christian. Okay? And that, that's not my opinion. That's the Bible. If, if you're like, Jesus, I don't want Him to be Lord. I'm certainly happy that He could save me one day. Well, He can save you. But He hasn't saved you yet if your attitude is like, yeah, I'm just kind of using Him as a fire insurance policy. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does it mean then, though, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same word that Paul uses earlier in the passage up in verse 12 when he tells us we're to put on the armor of light. That, the Greek word that we have there translated as put on, it's the same word that would be used, for example, to put on your pants or to put on a jacket. It's the idea of 
clothing oneself. That, that's what we're supposed to do with Jesus. We're to clothe ourselves with Jesus. And here's the key. Here's why we're to put on Jesus. Because we cannot, we cannot keep the commands of God in our own strength. We can't do it. It's impossible. If you look at all these commands, you're like, wow, I've got to do all this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. I'm going to do it today. No, you're not. Not without Jesus. You're not going to do it. And so you need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we put Him on as our Lord, then we live our lives through the strength He provides for us. Here here in verse 14, the verb tense of that command to to put on the Lord Jesus, it's referring to a once and for all type of action. So we, we put on the Lord Jesus one time. It's not something we do every day. We put Him on once and for all. And when we put Him on, then we're able to love as He loved because He first loved us. And we love, and remember, love is an action. We love because God Himself is love. We can't walk as He walked if we don't have His love. We need His love. And in order to have His love within us, we need to put Him on. We need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we recognize every day, every day we recognize that the reason we're able to walk as He walked is because we've already put on the Lord Jesus Christ. When we we make our choice to trust in Jesus, when we make our choice to say, Jesus is my Lord, we're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. The second command is that we make no provision for the flesh. And unlike that first command, this verb tense is telling us that this is something that we keep on doing. We we never stop here. We never stop. We might say we're supposed to keep on making no provision for the flesh. This, This is our ongoing relationship as long as we live in this fallen world that we make no provision for the flesh or we keep on making no provision for the flesh. And so it requires us, beloved, to be constantly vigilant, to regularly examine ourselves, to examine our actions, to examine our thoughts. And it's a good idea to have people who are close enough to you who can speak truth into your life, people who will speak truth to you and people to whom you will listen. And why do we need those people? Why do we we need... A community around us because our flesh, it's right here in verse 14, our flesh, that's our fallenness, our flesh has its own desires. And the desires of the flesh are always, underscore always, contrary to the desires of the Spirit. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5. That the desires of the flesh are always contrary to the desires of the Spirit. So you might think about it this way. As long as we live in this fallen world, we're involved in this massive spiritual battle. As Christians, we, we live in a time when we, when we recognize we've already been saved from sin, but we still live in a world that's full of sin and temptation. So we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin, but there's still the presence of sin in this world. 
And as long as we live in this world, we're still going to face the temptations of the flesh. And so Paul tells us, make no temptation, or excuse me, make no provision for the flesh. Here's a, here's a simple example of how that works. Suppose you're on a diet. Okay, you've, you've, for the last 10 years, you've been on five pounds every year, and you're 50 pounds overweight right now. You say, I need, I need to lose some weight. And you love ice cream. And by the way, this is not autobiographical at all, okay? Uh, but you love ice cream. In fact, you love ice cream so much that if, if, if ice cream is in the house, you're going to eat it. I mean, just doesn't matter what kind of diet you're on. You're, if ice cream is in the house, it's like calling you from the... Eat me, eat me. You know, it's right there, and, and you're going to do it. So what do you do? Yeah. The next time you go to the grocery store, don't buy the ice cream, right? Because you, you know if it's in the house, you're going to, it's going to be a temptation to you, so don't buy it. And if it's, if it's that much a temptation, then send somebody else to the grocery store in your stead with the express directions, don't buy any ice cream while you're at the store. Because if you refuse to buy it, then you're not making provision for the flesh. You're not giving your flesh an opportunity to eat the ice cream. You're removing that temptation from yourself. That, that's what Paul's talking about here. Now, on a more serious note, what, what, if, what if it's not ice cream? What if it's pornography? What if that's what you struggle against? Well, maybe what you need to do is put some blocking software on your computer, put some blocking software on your phone, or here's a crazy idea, just get rid of your smartphone altogether. Or what, what if it's gossip? What if gossip is your problem? You just find yourself, oh man, there I go again, I'm gossiping again. Well, Maybe what you need to do is enlist a trusted brother or sister in Christ. And you say, I, I, want, what this, I want you to ask me every week, at least every week, if not multiple times a week, I want you to ask me about my gossip life. If, if, am I gossiping? We, we make no provision for the flesh. Period. So what do we do? We, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We experience His love in our lives. And we live our lives through the strength of His love in our lives. And through that strength and through His love, we make no provision for the flesh so that we might win victory in our life over sin. This is how we live a life that honors God. Let's pray together. While I'm praying, the praise team can come back up, please. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for this time that you've given us together. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and to worship. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use this time now to your honor and glory to help us walk in a way that's pleasing to you and that we would recognize that Christian love is indeed the defining Christian characteristic. So help us to live that way and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.